Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Turn with me tonight to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. And we are going to be talking tonight. It's our last lesson, a 10-part series through the Gospel of John. And we are talking tonight about the resurrection and the evidence of the Holy Spirit, of Jesus uh, rising from the dead, all right? And then we're going to wrap it up and talk about the love that God had through Jesus Christ. So uh, if you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 20. We're going to read verses 1 through verse 11. John chapter 20, verse 1 through verse 11. The resurrection. Let's read it together. So, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Well, we know that's John because John is so humble he doesn't mention himself uh, in his own gospel. He puts all the focus on Jesus. What a message that is. And so it says, they have taken away... So she ran, came to Simon Peter and the other disciple who Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter. So, you know, John is younger. I don't know if he's bragging there that he's faster than Peter or what. But he ran faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there. So that's the grave clothes wrappings, the mummy clothes, right? Uh, laying there, but he did not go in. Now note John's humility again with Jesus and his, just his nature. We've talked about this a little bit with John, on our first lesson with John having that, that humility now after what happened on the cross. So Simon Peter came, passed him in, and entered the tomb. Saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself, as if someone had placed it there purposefully. So the other disciple who had come first to the tomb also entered it. He saw and believed. But look at this verse. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked in to the tomb. Okay, pause right there. We're talking about these final moments. Now, last week we talked about the, the cross and all the scriptures and, and uh, psalms that were fulfilled for the cross. We talked about the character of Pilate and his predicament of what he had to go through and the Roman law that had to do that and how the Jews used multiple ways to get Christ crucified. It was all to be fulfilled, Jesus knowing the hour that it was happening. John wants you to know this did not happen by accident. It was ordained by God. Jesus went willingly, even though uh, it looks like that he was for t- taken by the mob. He, when he said his name, they all fell at his feet. And so you didn't take him willingly. He went willingly. You didn't take him. He went willingly, right? So if he can speak his own name, uh, then people fall out. This guy went to the cross of his own accord. That's the important part John wants you to know, and that this was all foretold. All right, John wants you to know this cross is on purpose. It's a reason. And then you see his, what Jesus says to the whole thing. Father, forgive them, and behold your mother, and it is finished. And we talked about all that last week. So now, three days have gone by. It's actually not how we count. People have talked to me over the years, Pastor, how is it three days? If it's a Friday and he raised on Sunday, isn't that just two days? Well, Jewish... 
the way the Jews in ancient times counted is they counted zero. When we say one, two, three, four, five, we start with one. They would start with zero. So Friday would be day one, right? Saturday, day two, Sunday, day three. So they count the first, you know, we don't do that in America. We wait till you get the full 24 hours, and then we say one. The second 24 hours, we say two. Well, they start with one. You know what I'm saying? So one, and then you go 24 hours, two, then you go 24 hours, three. It's just a different way of how you count, all right? So that's why it's three days, all right? So this becomes a moment for John in his gospel, the last couple chapters here, and he wants to show you the evidence that Jesus Christ is resurrected. Okay, so let's talk about this just a little bit. John's version is distinct because it's firmly based in the paradigm that Jesus Christ was that sent one, that Logos from the Father, bringing into play everything that's been said in the entire gospel up to this point, and he fulfills the role of God's sent one, his son, all right? And so there's a number of evidence we're going to look at here in John chapter 20 and then John chapter 21. The main two we just read, uh, that Jesus did rise from the day, grave. And look in John 20. What did we The two things that they saw were what? There was an open tomb and there was grave clothes. All right? That's the first thing that John wants us to note. There was an open tomb that somebody rolled away. He couldn't have done it from the inside. Somebody had to do it from the outside. The angels, we know, we would look later in other Gospels, they would roll it away. And then there was these grave clothes. So it's the first day of the week. Mary, one of Jesus' followers, goes to the tomb. Uh, she, she finds that everything is dark, everything's removed. She goes to Peter, she goes to John, and John outruns Peter. He waits for him out of respect. And the tomb is empty, but it's not completely empty. There are linen strips folded, like the strips kind of like, again, we think about a mummy. Then there's a, a grave cloth. A head face covering, kind of like we talk about that. You've seen the Shroud of Turin thing on the news, you know, years ago. It's just a face cloth that would rest over it. Um, there is a lot in, in that. We're not going to go into that tonight. Some people have said that there was Jewish custom to uh, put a face covering or put a napkin at a table to signal that you were coming back. I've heard that before. If anything, John is saying that Jesus is coming back. That's, that's one uh, theory there. The other is just that simply... This is not something that they stole his body and moved him. There's literally, it's as if someone got up and had to unravel it, and then he took the time to gently fold it up, and Jesus didn't leave a messy room, so preach that to your kids sometime. He, even in the grave, he did his laundry. You know I mean, come on. So he folded it, wrapped it there, and then purposefully, as if no one didn't just take his body, steal under his cold, and, you know, under his, uh, take his clothes off, and then take his body. It was something very purposeful, very intimate. He folded his clothes, he laid them there, and even took the face cloth off and laid it at another place. And again, some Jewish people would say, or some customs would say, that's to signal as if someone was coming back, which we go, he is coming back, all right? Isn't that cool? So, and then look what he says in verse 8. The other disciple that Jesus loved, he enters the tomb. It says, he saw and he believed. Now, remember, these are some key words for John. He saw and he believed. It was to believe. Why am I writing this gospel? So that you may believe. That's the title of our series, so that you may believe. That's the evidence of Christ. This whole book is to the evidence of Christ. And John says, there was a moment when I was transformed by what his man's love for me has done, that God so loved the world he sent. Remember, that's John's words, that God so loved the world he sent his only son 
for me, this one disciple. I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. I'm not even worried to put my name in this book, that he so loved me. Then he gave me charge of his mom. And then when I saw that he was not in the tomb, I realized I hadn't understood what this whole thing is about. And I said, I understood then. I saw and I believed. So that's key for him. And so that's his revelation of the resurrection. But it says that many of the disciples in the next verse did not understand what the Old Testament scriptures had prophesied about this event. They were living these moments and they couldn't see it. So let's look at some of the witnesses as evidence. Um, we got the empty tomb as evidence. The witnesses, there's 10 post-resurrection appearances. Let's just kind of go through some of these 10 real quick. We won't have time to read them all tonight. But the first one is Mary Magdalene. We're going to go into that one here in a second real deep. But you've got Mary Magdalene who sees Jesus, and we're going to see, she sees the tomb, and she's going to see Jesus. You've got the women returning from the tomb that went with her that were going to give spices, but then they saw that he was gone and not there. You've got Peter, who we just said. You've got the two other disciples who will meet Jesus on the, way, on the road to Emmaus, which is a cool story. If you haven't read that, check it out in Luke and Mark. Then you've got the assembled disciples, which we'll mention here in a second, which is Thomas. Uh, remember the doubting Thomas? You know, I got, I'm not going to believe unless I put my hand in, in, his, uh, in his holes in his uh, hand, or put my hand in his hand and then the hole in his side. And then you've got a week later, Jesus will appear to the assembled disciples, including Thomas. Uh, and seven disciples, number seven is seven disciples at the Sea of Tiberias in Galilee. When they go back fishing in John 21, they'll see Jesus there. You'll have another moment where the 11 disciples, perhaps with 500 people, will be heard with teaching Jesus. And he'll manifest himself for 40 days teaching people on, in Galilee on a mountain. Then you'll say that Paul says that James even saw him at one moment in 1 Corinthians 15. And then all the disciples saw him before the ascension uh, at the Mount of Olives. And I'll even add number 11 is that Paul says he, was, he appeared to me also, the last of the apostles or one that he's like, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle. But he said, even Christ appeared to me. So you have all of this stuff. Okay, so let me just talk about why this is important. You say, well, what if they all made this up, Pastor Heath? And I've been talked to atheists before. Okay, well, you're saying that's all the Bible. How do you, the Bible can't be your only source for this. There is a historical rule, I think I've said it here before, called multiple attestation, which is, in the ancient world, you must have three sources, three historical texts, three pyramids that say the same thing, or three tombs that say the same thing. So if we were going to go dig up something and say, well, this big battle happened in this one desert, okay, we need to have some other corroborating evidence to know which king won. So we need three sources to say which king won in this ancient battle. Because I'm telling you, I could just make stuff up. Oh, yeah, we won the battle, and we had a great victory, and write that on my tombstone, even though you lost horribly, right? So you need more context. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were all written by separate authors in the ancient world. Uh, they all were transmitted by people who were early followers. These early follower, followers assumed that they were true and transmitted and say, we're going to take this gospel, this letter we got from Luke, we're going to copy it, we're going to send it to somebody else. And they lived their life even dying by the sword and the lion and the... Why would you die for something that was fiction, right? So these early followers began to die for this story Matthew, Mark, and Luke are over 98% the same across the board. Some would say even higher than that. They're the same story told from three different perspectives, from three different authors. They all three agree that this story happened, and it's almost virtually the same. 
Then the, John adds his fourth. They're all ancient authors, all written in the first century, all eyewitnesses of this guy named Jesus. Then you have 11 different accounts that this guy, by over 500 people in the first century, saw this guy alive after the resurrection. And then first century eyewitnesses wrote the story down, began transmitting it, and then dying for it. Now, does that sound like something that's fake? Why would that be fake? But yet we can have authors and critics and uh, historical you know, uh, people try to talk now in 1900, 1950, 2000, 2020 and say, well, this is probably you know, some kind of historical book made to blah, 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 and it was probably not true. It's all literary. Why would I believe someone 2,000 years later who never had any eyewitness experience versus 500 people with four ancient texts that attest that this story was true, and these people all died for the validity of this story. Who would you trust? Eyewitnesses who transmitted it across the world within a few hundred years had taken over the Roman world for the gospel of Jesus Christ because of what they believed it to be true, died for it, and attest from four different sources that were eyewitnesses that all 500 500 people saw this guy risen from the dead. In any other uh, department in any college, archaeological school, historical school, if this did not have to do with supernatural things about Jesus Christ, they would all declare this was a true story. If this was about uh, Kutantaman or some pharaoh or Ramses or whatever, they'd all say, oh yeah, we have four ancient sources that say, and we have 500 eyewitnesses that declare this king won this battle. Now why... Well, they do that for historical text, but not for the Bible, all right? So John makes the fourth case, all right? So that's going to preach, all right? Let's go on further. Here's something interesting about God. He goes to the lowly. Mary's story. Let's look at Mary as evidence here. Mary's story is unique, and here's why. Mary Magdalene is the first to arrive early at the tomb. Now, remember, Mary has had this unique, intimate relationship with Jesus. No, they were never married. No, they didn't have a kid. No, no, that all happened, all right? Mary has is, is got a special place with Jesus. Some would say that she was the woman that had seven demons cast out. Some have said that she was the one with the oil, an alabaster jar. We don't, none of that is, we can't say for sure any of that. But here's what we are, or the, we can say for sure the seven demons. We can't say for sure the oil part. But she's the first to arrive at the tomb. Jesus has transformed her life. Note this. It was a woman who was there to minister to Jesus during his time when he was in the grave. The disciples weren't there. They weren't waiting for him to come. They didn't believe. They were all hiding from the Roman government. Some of them were about to go fishing, right? It was a woman who had been... uh, Luke chapter 8, verse 2, and Mark 16 talks about that she was the one that had the seven demons cast out. Look in verse 11 through 14 in John. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head, one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. No, he's in his resurrected body now. So think about that. Uh, for you who may not like the face or the body you have now, maybe you'll like your resurrected body better. I don't know. But she didn't understand who it was. And she, he said, woman, why are you weeping? 
Whom are you seeking? She thought he was the gardener. She said to him, Sir, if, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Look, she wanted even the dead body. It was been in the tomb a day. And said, I, I want to minister to the dead body of my Lord and Savior. Now, that's ministry right there, okay? We're supposed to be ministering to a living Jesus every day, all day. She wanted to even minister to the dead body of Jesus. So that's a whole sermon in there, all right? Uh, she, and he says, Mary. So when he, she said, you know, he said her name, Mary turned and said to him, Rabbani, which means teacher. She said, and he said, stop clinging to me. So I have not yet ascended to the Father, but I go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. And she came, and his key, and she came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Who is the first person in the Bible to see the resurrected Jesus? It is a woman, possibly a previous prostitute, a demon-possessed, delivered woman, single woman, who could own no property, who had no voting rights, and who legally was not a valid witness in a court. Why? Think about it. God allowed, ordained, or chosen, whatever word you want to say, the first person to validate his witness that he had risen from the grave was, a, in the Jewish context in the first century, a worthless witness. Does that say something about the character of God that breaks through man's traditions? And This woman could not own property, could not vote, could not, could not, if she, was, if she saw a crime and a man had a testimony and she had a testimony, they would disown her testimony and go with the man's testimony. And yet Jesus allows the first person, not to be Peter or John or James, but Mary, because she wanted to minister to Jesus. Now, I will let you preach that sermon to yourself and go on and tangent and just preach that to other people. Because He's looking for true worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Think about it. Tie all this in together. The woman at the well, nobody wanted to deal with her. She was all alone. She was going to drink water in the middle of the day to get away from other people because she had had five husbands. She was living with another guy. She was an outcast. What does he say? Let drink, let feed me water. That was anti-custom. That was against you. You don't touch or talk to a woman if you're a Samaritan, uh, Samaritan woman and a Jewish man much less give her, let her serve you water, right? Think about that. He, he, you see Jesus breaking down these cultural religious barriers to preach the gospel to the lowly, to the poor heart, to the broken in spirit. And he says in Matthew, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. I mean, Jesus, even after his death, by allowing Mary to see him, is ministering to her. Because of her love for him. That just goes to show you, it doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, where you come from. Jesus loves you. And he validates your story. And so what is, look what happens. He says, don't hold to me. Stop clinging to me. Don't hold, stop holding me back. Probably refers to this embrace that she has on him, right? She hugs him with this bear hug. And she's crying. She's weeping. He's like, okay, lady, come on, come on, come on. I got, I got, got, I got things to do, right? I've heard people say, well, it's because he was so clean. And she was, I, don't, I don't believe that because he, she's a believer. She's clean in Christ. She's been forgiven. He's resurrected. He's got a clean body. You can't make Jesus unholy. He takes our sin and just consumes it if his holiness. So this whole, I've heard that say, well, he had this resurrected body and, and her sinfulness couldn't touch his. No, no, no. That has all gone away with if you just understand what he was doing here. He was letting a woman see him and validate him. 
He was talking about her embrace. Don't hold on to me. We've got things to do. We've got, I got to go tell people. You've got things that I want you to do. And so um, probably it's like sometimes you're, my kids hold on to me and I'm like, okay, I got to go to the bedroom. Stop, get off my leg. You know, like I need to, I got to get things done. All right. Okay, I, I'm alive. I got it. All right, let's move on. So she now becomes a missionary. Look in verse 18. Mary Magdalene came announcing to who? To the very men who were supposed to understand this moment. And it was a woman of all people who told the disciples Jesus was alive. All right, so there's a big movement out there in the Calvinist theology about you can't have women pastors, can't have women preachers. Miss Evelyn's here. You know, uh, you can't. Val- Jesus blows all that out of the water. All right? So keep all that to yourself. Talk, to, you know, that's Jesus. It's all gone. All right. So anyway, so she went to the disciples with the news. I've seen the Lord. First woman witness is Mary. All right. I say this. The first witness is a woman who is Mary. All right. Now the disciples are still slow to believe. Let's go on a little bit. Sunday night, we call this a Sunday night revival. They're hiding in fear. They need some ID. Uh, who's at the door? What's going on? Jesus appears through the wall, and he breathes the Holy Spirit with power, tells them to proclaim the forgiveness of sin. Uh, Thomas hears about it because he's not there. I don't know where Thomas was, but he, uh, he was skeptical. Jesus instantaneously appears then in that moment, walks through the doors, and he shows the scars. Uh, he invites them to worship with him. They have a communion moment together. And uh, let's look and read that in verse 29. Chapter 20, verse 29. I'll go in verse 28. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord, my God, which is probably one of the most greatest declarations in John about who Jesus was. Because you have seen, Jesus says, have you believed? Remember the key word for John is believe. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. And that's you and me. That's what we're supposed to do tonight. Finishing this series, finishing this gospel is... What Pilate said, or what they, the Jews had said, what shall we do with Jesus? Pilate said, what is truth? Right? This is all throughout John's gospel. What do we do with this guy? What are, we gonna, what are you going to do with Jesus? Herod tried to kill him. Pilate tried to kill him. Herod made a mockery, said he's no threat to my kingdom. People didn't want to believe him, and people didn't know what to do with him. And yet here you have the lowly people, women, prostitutes, slaves, tax collectors, people who are outcasts of society, Believing in this guy, he receives them. This Logos, the Word of God made flesh, that God so loved the world, that the cosmic creator, sustainer God, who holds the world in his hands, became as a man, walked among us, dealt with our sin on his body on the cross, endured the shame for the joy set before him. And now he says, now tell the world what you've seen. Do you believe? And so it says in verse 30, and many other signs in this book, are not recorded. In fact, it says that if the world, the world could not contain all the things that Jesus had done in his just three years of ministry, that John says, I suppose if we could write all this stuff down that he did between this village and that village and that village, and then how that family was impacted and that family was impacted just in his three years, you couldn't contain the books that could be written about the marvelous works of Jesus in three years. Now, let me just throw this out there. If Jesus... In the form of a man who is limited in his place and position and power, even, did so many marvelous things in just three years. What will unfiltered eternity be like with him? Think about that. 
Marvelous upon marvelous, as Paul says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, not even entered into the heart of him. You had not even got a glimpse of what glory awaits being with that guy forever. Amen? That's some good stuff right there. All right. Okay, so why is this important? Look in John 20, verse 30, verse 30 through 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing, why? You may have life, eternal life, everlasting life in His name. That is the clearest statement found in any of the Gospels. And those that are in this book are chosen, all the signs, all the statements, all the things Jesus said, John purposefully chooses to put in this book. And he's wanting you to know this one thing, that believing in Jesus, simple faith, simple believing, not just a belief, though, that's just a simple confession with your mouth, because even demons do that. Even, even people in the Bible, some recognize that he did great works. Some people knew he was a great teacher and a prophet. But he's saying this is a believing, a life-transforming belief. What he says to Nicodemus, a born-again experience where the Holy Spirit comes in your life, and it changes who you are. It changes your relationship with Christ. You become adopted as a child of God. You are a slave no longer to sin. You're a slave to Christ. You become a friend even to Christ. And he says, if you abide in me, I abide in you. This intimate relationship, that's what John would define belief as. This believing is abiding. It's not just, okay, I believe that there is. Like in America, you come to, the, to, come to where you wave your flag, you keep your Bible, you get your gun, and you say, hey, I'm a Southerner, Republican. I believe there is a Jesus in the Bible that was true. Okay, is that believing according to John? No. Believing according to John is this abiding, intimate relationship with Jesus that changes your life. He says, if you believe, you will have everlasting life. Okay, it's not your work of belief. I think that's key for most people. Some people believe, act as if belief is their part of faith. Like, I believe, and if I believe more, I'll be more saved. Okay? But for John... Belief is this moment where we repent of our sins and we confess Jesus, but then there's this active internal thing that happens with the Holy Spirit. So it's not, I mean, I have a work to do in this, and I'm trying to explain it the best I can. We have a work to do in our belief, but really it's His work in us. Does that make sense? That it's not me just believing on the facts or the knowledge of Jesus. Belief in God is this interworking where the Holy Spirit and I are together, abiding together in a life-changing relationship. All right? Amen? Okay. So, why is this important? Let's look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Okay? 1 Corinthians, to change pace here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We say, well, Pastor Heath, why did John spend so much time on this resurrection? And he really, other gospels don't do this like John did. And they really kind of, a lot of the gospels even skim over the cross as much as you would think I think we've put more uh, in Hollywood and in our stories and our Easter plays. We put a lot more emphasis in the goriness of the cross, if you've ever noticed this, than even the Gospels. Some of them are just a few verses. Talk about Mark. Read Mark and just think about, the, it's not very long. It's like, wait a minute, where's, all the, where's Mel Gibson's story at in here? Where's all, the, where's all the little drama? And John really wants you to talk about the resurrection. All right, watch this. So why is this important? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, let's look in 
Uh, let's see. He has, Paul was writing this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He's, people are debating whether or not people are, if Jesus was raised from the dead or not. And he says in verse 17, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Verse 20, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. All right? And then he goes on, and he says in verse 4, 2, So this is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in a perishable body. It is raised in imperishable body. It's sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown in a natural body, but it's raised in a spiritual body. And he talks about the mystery of the resurrection. Verse 51, Behold, I tell you mystery. We read this at funerals all the time. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed. In a moment, a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead in Christ will be raised imperishable. And we will be changed. For this perishable thing must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. There is a theology of the resurrection in John. And what Christ's resurrection does is simply this. Christ's resurrection cannot be separated from his crucifixion. Okay? So what the crucifixion accomplished, one author says this, that Christ's substitutional sacrifice for our sin is sealed and accepted by God in raising Jesus from the dead. The cross is half of the story. If you just have the cross and you don't have the resurrection, you don't have the good news. That he died for our sins, but death was the result of those sins. He also had to conquer death for this thing to work. For us to, we can, uh, he can die to our sins and we can die to our sins too. But if we're going to live in new life, he had to give us new life. He had to have new life in his physical body. So remember, he was a man. He was 100% man, 100% God. So this man had to take on, this perfect man had to be in the place of us. He had to undo what the first perfect man did. The first perfect man sinned. And only another perfect man could undo the sin of the first perfect man. Does that make sense? If you say a life for a life, an eye for an eye, right? Sacrifice required the guilt offering. Every sin required a substitution. Once Adam sinned, there was no other perfect human beings in the world. And the world needed another perfect human being to die in the place of Adam and all Adam's children. Not only that, though, it needed someone to be able, because even if he died, okay, he died. But now we're all still living in that curse. We, we, we can be freed of sin, but we have no power to live in eternity with God. So he, Jesus comes as the new Adam, Romans 5 said. He dies in the place of Adam. He becomes a new Adam. This perfect man dies, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, this perfect man is raised to life. So now we have a new Adam, a new genealogy, a new, pe- a new race of people that whoever believes in Christ now identifies with him, gets a new spiritual DNA from their father, Jesus Christ, and now they can live with him. They die with him, they live with him. So Paul's saying this, What does Christ's resurrection do? That Jesus rose from the grave in power. So here's what it is. If Jesus had not risen from the grave, here's what would happen. Number one, evil would have triumphed over good. 
If he had not risen from the grave, number two, faith in a good God would not be rational. One author says this. Number three, if he had not risen from the grave, the concept of a moral universe, one author says, would be impossible. And number four, humanity's only philosophy would be total pessimism. What hope do we have? What's the point of living? Why don't you just go live free and die? I mean, I don't understand how atheists even obey laws. What's the point? If you think that this life is all there is, then, buddy, live it up. Get away with everything you can get away with. What's the point of morality? What's the point of good? Just live. Live for yourself. Cheat on your spouse. Cheat on your wife. Eat as much as you want. Enjoy life. Live on a beach somewhere. I mean, just go for it. Steal what you want to steal. Live for yourself because that's all there is. But if you believe there's more than this, that's why you really have morality. And so that alone is proof. Why does man have law? Why does man have morality? Why does man believe in good and evil? It's because inside every man, they know. They know there's more to this than just this life. Every atheist in the world, if they were truly an atheist, would live completely for themselves with no moral law at all, right? Because what's the point if it's just for today? But Christ winning over the grave, that we know that we can have faith in a good God. We know that there is a reason for the morality in this universe. We know that our philosophy now is optimistic. It's an assurance that there is life after death, that eternal life does exist in the presence of God. And all of us, if we identify with Christ through faith, just like Jesus' first followers, and all of us who have never seen him but we've believed in him, we already now have died with Christ in crucifixion and will be raised to new life and so we have that union with him, all right? So this is key go time for John. This is, go, this is deciding moment. You read this gospel. It's, John is a great gospel to give first-time believers because you've got to make a decision. You've got to make a decision. What are you going to do with him? This is written so you may believe. Remember, we've got seven significant signs, seven statements of I am, seven witnesses of Jesus Christ. And the last two witnesses were the Holy Spirit and now you and me. We're tied to Mary He's talking about people who believed. Now you're my witnesses to this world that I am alive. And as you look in, if you look in the gospel, what is the number? If you look at, sorry, if you look in the book of Acts, the number one thing the church preached. If we're Pentecostal, we're going to say it was the Holy Spirit baptism. That's not true. Go read the sermons that they read and they preached. They preached the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The remission and repentance of sin that there is hope after this life because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ was sent to die for our sins, that he died on the cross, and in three days he rose again. So what is the gospel? It is that Jesus came as God's son, that he lived a sinless life, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he went into the grave for three days, and on the third day he rose again, and today he is alive and well seated at the Father, and that he is coming back again to take us home. What's the gospel? It is the good news of the story of Jesus Christ. That's it. So if you say, what, what, is, what is this whole Christian thing? It is about the life, death, resurrection, and second coming of Jesus Christ. It's that simple. It's easy. It's a simple thing. And it's all on purpose. All right, so let's change it up. Resurrection theology. Our life, our Christianity, is about resurrection theology. All right, I'm going to change it up. Let's summarize. Now that we've, uh, that's the end of the whole series. Let's do a recap here on major themes with John. John gives us some major themes. I'm going to skip through. I encourage you to read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. You're going to get a lot more out of it. 
the letters of, let's go, I'll go quicker here on my uh, slideshow. First, second, and third John are his letters to the churches. Oh, there we go. Let's go back. All right. There's some key theologies. I'm going to just give you this, and then we're going to talk about love. Some key theologies of John when you read this, and what is it, why is this important? Number one is there's a doctrine of God in John that highlights that God is life, and to practice love is to demonstrate the character of God, and to love the Son is to love the Father. He talks about sin. The doctrine of sin says that the devil is source of sin. He's sinned from the beginning, even from creation. John talks about sin as darkness and lawlessness and rebellion. He talks about sin being universal uh, and comprehensive. He talks about that every person is a sinner. These are some basic Christian doctrines. When you read the Gospel of John, you're going to get that there's a doctrine of Christ. That Christ is the Son of God. There's a reality here that He was beyond the existent world. That He's the Word of God made flesh. 21 times in John... And in 1 John and 2 John, he's called, sorry, 21 times he's called the Son in 1 John and twice in 2 John. He's called the Word of Life. He's, uh, that's the echo of this uh, existent God, this Logos teaching. He's one with the Father, and he himself is life of God. He's the true God, the eternal life. He's the, the, the Son of God. He's deity, he says. He says that he'd uh, atoned for the whole sins of the world. He destroyed the devil's work. All this is accomplished in his bloody death on the cross. He was... Uh, a demonstration of the Father's love for us. That's who Jesus Christ is. Then there's a unique doctrine of the Holy Spirit we talked about already on one of our lessons, that He's the Spirit of truth. And, and for John, we, you know, we're a, a Pentecostal church here. We believe in the fullness of the Holy Spirit and the evidence and the gifts of the Spirit. But for John, the Holy Spirit is this testifying uh, Spirit of truth, that the Spirit of truth uh, that, that raised Jesus from the dead is going to be in you. And that spirit of truth is going to tell you things and remind you of his teachings and be another witness in the last days. So he's got the doctrine of salvation in John. That's Jesus has a redemptive work that's making possible our salvation. That believing and receiving him makes you born again and a child of God. And it says, even though in First John, he talks about even if you commit acts of sin, and you shouldn't live habitually in sin. And you've got an advocate, one who goes to the Father for you. And he says, uh, in the end times, that's the doctrine of eschatology. Uh, and he says, there's this last hour, you and I, and this is important for today, because the way John writes this, and the way Jesus dies on the cross, and the things he says at the final hour, and the way Peter will preach in Pentecost, it's to understand, guys, this moment is just fleeting. When Jesus died from the, on the cross and raised from the dead and began his church, that began the last days. So if the last days began 2,000 years ago, how close do you think we are right now? Come on. I mean, he says this is the beginning of the end. This is the messianic age. This is the time the prophets long for, the angels look for. This is now. You're living in a day that is important. And so it's not just let's just get through to get to heaven and buy a car and go on vacation at Disney World and build a pool and, and all these. No, you are living in a day that's like no other day in prophetic heavenly history that the whole universe has been waiting for the day since adam when the messiah would come and undo thousands and thousands of years of man's fallen nature and start a new day of eternal history where this would usher in the beginning of the end that this little vapor of a window that we have right now called time it's going to end one day and it's going to be eternity with god forever so how important is it what will you do with jesus now 
This is all we've got. This is all we've got. And it's coming to an end. Judgment's coming. John will tell you the Antichrists are here. This is the Messianic age. Read the first, second, third John. He's going to get crazy in there. But this is the most important thing. This last couple minutes, I want you to just listen in on this, and let's uh, pull it all together. Probably the most impactful thing you'll learn about John is he is the author, uh, the God, the, sorry, he's called the Apostle of Love. All right? I want to read to you just some verses here on the screen and just look at how much and why this is so important to this guy who was called the Son of Thunder, fiery evangelistic preacher who wanted to call fire from heaven down on Samaritans. But he saw Jesus giving water to a Samaritan woman. He saw Jesus letting filthy women of no, re- no regard wash his feet with her tears. He saw Jesus eating with sinners. He saw Jesus eating with tax collectors. He saw Jesus give Judas the favored sop and forgive Judas even before he was betrayed. He saw Jesus go to that cross, the Logos, the Word of God, who could wipe everybody out with the legions of angels. He could speak one word and it'd be over. And he kept saying, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Lord, not my will, but your will. He sweated drops of blood. He cried. He wept over the city of Jerusalem. He wept over people that he created, that mocked him, that accused him, that ridiculed him. He went before mock trials and mock courts and fake Jewish kings that said, you're a joke. And he was crucified for being the very person that he was. Here is this man, king of the Jews. Kill him. That's who he was. He died for being himself. And John would write, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. Whoever would now believe in him would not perish for giving eternal life. Look what he'd write. John eleven five. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. John eleven thirty six. The Jews said, Look, see how he loved him, Lazarus. Jesus wept over a man he knew he would raise from the grave. He had compassion. Before the feast of Passover, John 13, he knew this hour had come, that he was about to die a horrible death. And it says that having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them. I love this verse. He loved them till the end. He loved them, and even though every single one of them would leave him and flee, and even though they would abandon him after they said, Jesus, will die with you, buddy. We're going to go all the way, bro. We're there. We got your back, man. we like bread brothers. They all left him and fled. He said they, he loved them to the very end. Whoo, man, that's our God. John 13, 23. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. John so moved by who, he, who Jesus that just, this guy loved me. I'm a guy that Jesus loved. And he wrote down a new commandment I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. Jesus talked about love. He talked about love. He talked about love. Jesus, John 14, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. The whole book of John, even 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, is all about love. And John takes this loftier role, discussing Christ, but also this more personal one. For me, it's so very interesting for John, as I wrap this up, that John writes about this cosmic Word of God made flesh, how this cosmic, intimate, infinite, mysterious Word of God that spoke the world into existence would manifest Himself in bodily form to love us. 
Think about that. Out there floating with space dust, making stars and galaxies, speaking the world into existence. The one thing he does is he personally forms man with his own hand. He speaks everything else, but he personally touches man in the garden, forms him, (laughs) breathes into him. And then he comes to the world to die for him. Wow. Look what John would also see. He says that Jesus loves the Father, so he does the Father's will. Jesus loves his sheep, so he dies for his sheep. Jesus loves his disciples, so he prays for them. Jesus loves his disciples, so he washes their feet. Jesus loves Judas to the very end. In John's gospel, Jesus' only command for his disciples is to love one another. He, John repeatedly reassures the reader that it is God's love, that God loves those who keeps his commands. And John, he continues to point to Jesus' death as an example of the type of love that Christians are to have for one another. That God expects the same love that he gave the world, he expects it out of our church. And, I, and I, I'll just say this, in the church world today, that is not a popular, we want to talk about tongues, interpretation, healing, baptism, miracle, all that's great stuff. But the number one thing Jesus told his disciples to be known for and talk about was love. Love in the Gospel of John, one author says this, argues that to understand John's concept of love requires you to understand more than what we can understand in the Gospel. To grasp John's concept of love, one must enter this literary world. He consistently makes the point that God loves the world, that his son died for it, and that Christians should exemplify this type of love. But much of the time, this comes from subtle themes, one author says. As you take this book and you put it all together... How God so loved the world. So very deep. And John would write in his, and I'll wrap it up with this, in John's letters, he would write that God is love. And that his model for us is Jesus. Jesus is the personification of God's love for us. Think of it that way. God so loved the world, he personified himself in Jesus to show you, when you couldn't understand how much God loved you, He showed you how much He loved you through Jesus. So you might believe and have everlasting life. Isn't that nice? We don't deserve a God like that. So not only does Jesus have love for us, but we have to have love for Him. Amen? Where do we take this from here as we close tonight? How do we love one another? How do we love God? How are we amazed by His love? How do we test love in our life? How does it apply to your life, to your Christianity? Believe in love. Believe in Jesus Christ. Love God, love people. Amen? Would you stand with us? Let's pray tonight. We just bring all this home into our hearts. John, the son of thunder, became John the beloved. He was so amazed that God so loved me, he sent his only son. How can I not love him with all that I have? How can I not love other people? If God died for that other person over there, Sometimes it's hard to love some people. 
Sometimes it's hard to love people who are not very lovable to us and persecute us, and then we think back. But Jesus, he took it all. The Bible says he did not utter a word as he headed to the cross. And so if God loved them and that person enough to die for them, how can I not also love God enough to forgive that offense, to let that thing go and say, God, you paid for that person's sin on that cross. That issue may not, sometimes you may not need, you need to let go of some of those issues between you and somebody else and just get your focus up on Jesus because Jesus has paid the price for that person's offense. He's paid the price for that person's faults. He's paid the price for that person's sin because he so loved them. And it's kind of those things in the Bible and the Gospels where it says, well, how can you, how can you hold that over them, that, that little splinter between you two when you are the one that had a log in your eye between you and God? If God has forgiven me for this great log I've had in my eye, how can I not forgive these other people? So, Lord, we just come before you tonight and just be amazed at your love. God, to just be transformed by it, to believe that God so loved us that he gave of himself to show us his love, to reveal his love for us so we might believe and be saved by love. But it's through grace that you have come, O oh God, and it's by our faith in you that we are saved, that we trust you, Lord. God, that I pray tonight, Lord, for us as believers who finish this series, as we read the Gospel of John, that we'd make a determination how we're going to live this life, how we're going to go by the power of the Holy Spirit to abide in you, to walk in the light, not in the darkness, to walk in truth, to not walk in falsehood, to testify of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, of this Son of God, this Savior Messiah, who so loved us that His love has transformed us in the way we walk and the way we think, that we must freely love others. And so, God, help us, Lord. Lord, I know that I falter in loving people. God, I don't have that heavenly love all the time to love others. Lord, I don't always see the world the way you see it. So, Lord, I pray, open our eyes tonight. Open my eyes tonight to see this world the way you see it. God, to have a heavenly love. Lord, that your love would consume us and fill us. Lord, forgive us. Lord, if we have other things against someone else. God, that we forgive those who have trespassed against us, Lord. That we also might be forgiven. Father, that we would love and be known for our love for one another, that we might glorify our Father in heaven. God, we thank you for the book of John, that it would be a testimony, Lord, for this generation, that you, God, are love. In Jesus' name, amen.